You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. If you're new, we're glad you're here. If you're not new, also glad you're here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us at Midtown. Uh, guys, you all got out of bed this morning because you wanted something. Maybe you wanted to go on a walk before it got unbearably hot outside. Maybe you wanted to have some time in the quiet before the chaos monsters called your children emerged from their lairs. Maybe you wanted to join together here with your community at Midtown to embrace space to recenter on Jesus. Maybe, like my wife, you just wanted a nice comforting cup of caffeine to start your day. Uh, I've realized in the mornings, I'm usually the first one to get up and the Levitt home, but as soon as I hit the coffee bean grinder, I become a magician because Emily appears around the corner immediately. It's amazing. But the point, whatever caused you to wake up this morning, the point is you're in this room, you rolled out of bed because of one thing, desire. We all wanted something or a series of somethings, and those desires led us to make the radical choice to get out of bed and into the world. Desire, to one degree or another, motivates everything we do, which means desire is often beautiful and good. Desire is what makes us passionate about our work. It's what makes us caring parents or neighbors or friends. It's what causes us to make good art or create good food or enjoy good company. But if at any point desire becomes something that we are unable to control, if at any point it takes the steering wheel of our lives in such a way that we can't channel it rightly, then we get into trouble. Because as good as desire can be, it's also one of those things that's never, ever really satisfied. Desire is often the root of human restlessness. And humans have recognized this for thousands of years, by the way. As far back as 1000 BC, the poet in the book of Ecclesiastes, in your Bible, put it this way, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Fast forward to the year 1740, you'll find the great philosopher David Hume echo the same sentiment. He said, desire alone of acquiring goods and possessions for ourselves and our nearest friends is insatiable, perpetual, and universal. And maybe, most pertinent to most of us in this room, one of our great modern poets and philosophers put it this way, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Got some Rolling Stones fans in the room, perhaps. Friends, what every one of these great minds and artists is getting at is a fundamental part of our human nature. Our desire is infinite. And because we are finite human beings, because we are inherently limited people with one body and one job and one mind and one spirit and one life, we constantly feel a deep sense of longing for more. We have an infinite desire, but we're unable to satisfy it with finite things. And so the human condition often becomes this perpetual sense of turmoil. We're restless souls in restless bodies, and that often manifests itself in busyness. We rush. We hurry around our lives. We frantically attempt to fulfill infinite desire by accumulating or accomplishing more finite things. In fact, we've built our whole culture around that idea. America, at its core, is a culture obsessed with obtaining more, consuming more, and an attempt to satisfy our infinite desire. Digital marketing experts say that we see upwards of 4,000 advertisements per day. And all of them are designed to stoke the fire of desire in us. Right now, at this moment, huge multinational companies have access to your heart through the computer sitting in your pocket. 
They know what you're thinking. They know what you're saying. They listen to your conversations. And then they craft everything that they do in order to make you think that more will satisfy you. Just a little bit more finite stuff will satisfy that infinite longing. And by the way, they're succeeding in their goal to make you get more. According to a recent study, when adjusted for inflation, Americans today spend three times more money than they did 80 years ago on goods and services. More food, more sex, more clothes, more shoes, more square footage, more iPhones, more overpriced lattes, more donuts. Donuts might just be me. But whatever it is for you, we are trained to be busy in our culture in order to satisfy our deepest desires. And if that message isn't clear through our marketing, it comes through loud and clear in our workplaces. America has trained us to become people who are more busy with their work in order to find satisfaction. There's a journalist named Derek Thompson who recently wrote an article on this for The Atlantic. He called our incessant busyness in our careers workism. He referred to it like a religion. He said this, workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Workism. And the result is a culture in America where more than 86% of men and 67% of women are overbusy, that is, working more than 40 hours a week. The Japanese culture has a word to describe this. They use the word kuroshi. Kuroshi refers to death by overwork. That's meant to be a caution to people in their culture, but Americans overlook that caution. According to the International Labor Organization, Americans work 137 hours more per year than the Japanese, 260 more hours per year than the British, and 499 more hours per year than the French. That maybe says more about the French than us, but to be fair, yeah. it's the French. I mean, guys, we consume things and we work like those things are going to satisfy our infinite desire, but it's not working. 70% of Americans are in some way unhappy or disengaged in the jobs where they overwork. As of 2019, the World Health Organization officially categorized burnout from work as a disease. And study after study correlate overwork and overconsumption directly with anxiety and depression. Finite work, finite accumulation have not satisfied our infinite desire. As Derek Thompson put it at the end of his article, our desks were never meant to be our altars. Our Western world is physically and spiritually forming us. And I use that language intentionally. Friends, you are being spiritually formed by something all the time. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's not, you're being spiritually formed by something. And our culture is spiritually forming all of us to believe that the infinite desire in our hearts can be satiated by constant busyness, constant activity. There's an author and scholar named A.J. Swoboda who writes about this in his book on Sabbath. He says, in bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, our souls increasingly, increasingly pant for meaning for value, for truth, as they wither away, exhausted and frazzled and displeased and ever on edge. And the result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> Feeling good? Just want to cheer you guys up to start our time. But seriously, the wear and tear of our constant busyness, it raises an important question. What do we do about it? What do we do with our infinite desire? If it can't be satisfied by finite stuff and all of the activity that we busily rush around doing, 
what can we do about it? And I also have good news for you this morning. There's an answer to that question. And it comes to you, surprise, from the person of Jesus in the scriptures. See, what Jesus and the Christian way communicate to us is that our experience of infinite desire exists because we were made to live in unity with God forever, to live in unity with an infinite God forever. And nothing less than unity with that infinite God forever will satisfy our souls. So that means that Christianity doesn't say your desires are inherently bad. Rather, those desires are actually really, really good, but they need to be rightly ordered so that you don't end up trying to satiate finite desires or infinite desires with finite things. C.S. Lewis put it this way cleverly, I think, in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. As the great African 5th century theologian Augustine put it, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We're continuing in a teaching series here at Midtown called The Cure for Busyness. We're setting aside three weeks. We're doing it really quickly, right, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) Three weeks to explore the ways in which Jesus and the scriptures both talk about our human propensity for busyness, but also prescribe practices that can serve as the cure. And today, we're going to focus on a particular habit that has for thousands of years, it actually precedes Jesus, for thousands of years has reminded followers of God everywhere that our deepest desires, our deepest satisfaction, they come when we intentionally set aside time to rest from our busyness, to rest from that busyness in loving unity with God. And the practice is called Sabbath. And so friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the very first page of your Bible. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 1, at the very end of chapter 1, and into chapter 2. So we're going to be starting at verse 31 in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, The beginning of this passage is actually the end of a really small, inconsequential part of history, the creation of everything. God has been hard at work, if you know the story, he's been hard at work forming and ordering and creating all things with deep love and care. The repeated refrain in Genesis 1 is that all of this creation is good, it's good, it's good, it's very good at the end. And it is kind of given to us in sequences of days. Don't focus so much on a literal day, that's actually not the point of the text. The text is actually just telling us that God has been really, really intentional with forming this creation. It's all supposed to work in harmony with other parts of creation. It's all dignified and has a place. It all contributes to the flourishing of everything else. And then at the very end of that story of creation, the text says that God rested. God rested. 
yeah, but I've got three kids and I'm homeschooling and I'm rushing them to sports and making dinner. God rested. Yeah, but you know, I'm an Enneagram three. I'm a doer. That's how I live. I like to get things. God rested. Yeah, but you know, my career, it's really about climbing the ladder and getting as much done as I can. God rested. And God rested after a far more productive work week than any of us have ever clocked in. You may have answered a couple hundred emails, but God's got the Himalayas. <laughs> and the sound of a stream and the beauty of the human body and the freaking sun, right? Like, that's God's resume. He's been hard at work, and yet, even with all of those things that he's got on his plate, he says, okay, this is good. I'm going to rest. I'm going to cease. I'm going to stop. And the word, we translate rest in our English Bible series, the Hebrew word Shabbat. We translate that into English as Sabbath, and that word simply means to stop or to cease. And the truth is that for many of us, even when we were raised in the church, that word, Sabbath, and that practice were often marginalized. It wasn't talked about all that much. For me, growing up, the word was kind of lumped in with a bunch of other Old Testament laws and commands, and it was actually depicted like a burden, something that we were released from, that we don't really have to do these same Old Testament practices any longer. But as I've gotten older, I've thought, that's really weird and curious because it's on the first page of the Bible. Like, it seems really, really important. It's woven into the fabric of creation. And then, later on, when God commands this as a gift, that's how it's expressed in the scriptures, when he commands it, it's included in the Ten Commandments. That means it's right alongside don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse. I'd say those things are pretty important. And yet, Sabbath is the one of those commands that we often brag about breaking. Oh, I was just really busy. It was an amazing product. We brag about breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It's remarkable. And so I think this practice, as much as it may have been overlooked in many of our Christian spaces, it's really, really essential to a healthy, holistic human life. And so for the rest of this morning, I want to unpack Sabbath in three main ways together. We're going to see in these kind of three categories how Sabbath is an essential cure for our busyness disease in our culture. We're going to talk about what Sabbath is and what it isn't. We're going to talk about what Sabbath does, and then we're going to talk about how we practice it what it is and isn't, what it does, and how we practice it. With me? All right. First, what Sabbath is and isn't. First, Sabbath is delighting and settling in, not sitting on our hands. See, when we first read this Genesis passage in English at a surface level, it can seem a little confusing because we often equate the word rest with sleep. That's how we use the word rest in our culture. So we think, ah, so God took a nap? Is that what God's doing? And to be fair, God is definitely not against napping. Nappers rejoice in the room. Napping is okay. It's good. But that's not what the text is getting at. God isn't fatigued, and God isn't needing to catch up on his nightly eight hours. God also is not twiddling his thumbs or sitting on his hands here. The language instead implies a sense of ceasing in order to enjoy and be present in the work that he's done. There's a great Genesis scholar named John Walton who brings this up explicitly. He mentions how the description in Hebrew carries with it a sense of stopping and settling in. He writes this, The linguistic information suggests that the seventh day is marked by God's ceasing of work of the previous six days and by his settling into the stability of the cosmos, perhaps experiencing refreshment as he did so. That's what's happening here. That's what it's describing. Uh, the best example I can think of to illustrate this is actually when I do yard work at home when I mow the lawn. There's two main things that happen in yard work. The first thing is really laborious work. 
So I've got to charge, we have electric lawnmowers, so I've got to wait to charge the batteries to actually do the things. And then once I get out there, I've got to pull some weeds and I've got to do edging, and then I've got to push the heavy lawnmower back and forth, and then I've got to unload the like, basket with all of the cut grass a couple times along the way. It's a lot of work, especially in Phoenix when it's hot outside. But then, the second part of yard work, the rest. I go inside, I take a quick shower, and then I get a glass out of the cabinet. Sometimes I'll make myself a nice old-fashioned. Yeah, so I mean, one ice cube, two Luxardo cherries, orange peel, not the point. Anyway, old-fashioned. And then I take an Adirondack chair and I plop it right in the middle of my yard. I'm barefoot. I let my feet move through the grass. I've got my trusty, fluffy companion, Wally, next to me. I watch the sunset. I sip my old-fashioned. I say, this is very good. I rest. I sit. I settle in in the product of my work and the goodness of my work. That's what the text is saying that God is doing here. He's put in hard work. And then he says, I'm settling into the goodness. I don't know if he had an old-fashioned. I can't confirm that. It's not in the text. But settling in to God's goodness. Stopping and delighting. And so that's the first thing we learn about Sabbath right away. It's, not, it's, it's something that should spark delight in us. It's not sitting on our hands. It's not twiddling our thumbs. It's not just doing nothing. The second thing that we learn about Sabbath it's the completion of creation, not a break that gets us ready to work again. It's the completion of creation. And both Jewish and Christian scholars have noted something curious about the language here in Genesis 2, where it describes what God did on the seventh day. Look really closely. It says, on the seventh, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested. God finished the work that he had done. That makes it sound like God is still doing something. Right? He's finishing on the seventh day. He's completing things on the seventh day. What the text is getting at is that God is actually doing something new on this seventh day. God is devoting a sacred period of time as an exclamation point to the end of the work week. A sacred space God is defining as the completion of the creation story. The creation story isn't complete without rest. Friends, joyful rest is woven into the fabric of creation. And no amount of work in our lives will ever be really deeply satisfied or ever something that we can really use to satisfy our souls unless we have rest. Rest is the exclamation point at the end of the week. And that flies right in the face of our busyness culture because for many of us, rest is often just a way to get more work done. It's a means to the end of more work. And what the Bible says is actually work is leading up to rest. Work is driving towards rest and work is incomplete without rest. Rest is not a means to your work. And that's because humans, and creation in general, we're not machines. We're not made to go and go and go and go and go. And creation is not meant to be constantly farmed, constantly cultivated, constantly produced. All of creation has been made to rest. It's an essential part of the rhythm of God's world. And we do violence against ourselves and against God and other people when we don't rest. There's a great quote from a guy named Wayne Muller who wrote a terrific book on Sabbath. I think he captures the way that rest is woven into the rhythm of all things. He says, in the relentless busyness of modern life, we've lost the rhythm between rest and work. All life requires a rhythm of rest. There's a rhythm in our waking activity and the body's need for sleep. There's a rhythm in the way that day dissolves into night and night into morning. There's a rhythm as the active growth of spring and summer is quieted by the necessary dormancy of fall and winter. There's a tidal rhythm 
a deep, eternal conversation between the land and the great sea. In our bodies, the heart perceptibly rests after each life-giving beat. The lungs rest between exhale and inhale, and we've lost that essential rhythm. Our culture invariably supposes that action and accomplishment are better than rest, and that doing something, anything, is better than doing nothing. And because of our desire to succeed, to meet those ever-growing expectations, we don't rest. Because we don't rest, we lose our way. We miss the compass points that would show us where to go. We bypass the nourishment that would give us support. We miss the quiet that would give us wisdom. We miss the joy and love born of effortless delight. And poisoned by this hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort, we can never truly rest. And for our want, our lives are in danger. And the data, friends, actually backs this up. This Genesis claim is actually being borne out in scientific study after scientific study. For instance, a recent study out of Stanford indicated that after 50 hours of work in a week, productivity plummets. And there actually is no measurable difference in productivity between somebody who works 70 hours and somebody who works 50. Overwork actually doesn't produce more because creation is not made that way. There's another recent experiment from the Microsoft offices in Japan. Some of you may have heard about this. They as an experiment, dropped the employee work week from five days to four, and productivity increased by 40%. They cut work, and people were more productive and also more satisfied. 92% of people were satisfied, more satisfied, which also makes me curious about the 8% of people who like wanted to work more. I don't know who those people are, but 92% employees satisfied. There's also, this is a radical thing. I was reading about this this week and was shocked. There are dozens of studies that have been done of Seventh-day Adventists, it's a Christian denomination that heavily focuses on practicing the Sabbath each week. And according to these studies, over and over again, they've averaged out that the average Seventh-day Adventist lives somewhere around 10 to 11 years longer than the average American. And then there was one researcher who wanted to dig into this. And he did the math of the cumulative total of time that one weekly Sabbath would build up to over a lifetime. Guess how many years? 10 to 11. What he concluded is that Seventh-day Adventists are oftentimes just adding, every Sabbath they take, adding one more day onto the rest of their lives. Now everyone in the room is like, I'm in. Sign me up. Sabbath. Right? You guys, when we don't practice Sabbath, we aren't just rejecting a religious practice. We are actively fighting God's design for us and the world. And the result is always devastating to us. As a philosopher, H.H. Martin put it, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. So it's not an accident that the culture most obsessed with busyness and overwork is also the culture most plagued by anxiety, by depression, by loneliness, by hopelessness, by disconnection from God and other people. That's the second thing we learn in this passage here in Genesis. Sabbath is woven into creation. It's the culmination of creation, not just a means to get us back into the world. And the third thing we learn about Sabbath, it's worship, not a day off. Notice that this text says that God blessed and hallowed the Sabbath day saying it's set apart as particularly important and special and holy. And this is actually the first time the word holy is used in the Bible. It's noteworthy that God is saying this particular uh, set of time, this particular day is set apart as holy. That's noteworthy in the culture especially. In the ancient Near East, gods were understood to be encountered and experienced only in spaces. So you have to go to a holy temple or a holy pyramid or a holy mountain or a holy shrine to experience the rest God to experience unity with God. But the Bible is saying 
that God can actually be experienced anywhere. Because this is the God of all creation. Creation is his temple. And so you actually can go anywhere. It's about setting aside time to do it. You can encounter God anywhere. It's not bound or contained. You just need to set aside time. That's why Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great rabbi who wrote a book on the Sabbath, put it this way. He said, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. They're the holy spaces in which we encounter the living and so to experience unity with God in this way, you don't need to make a pilgrimage, you don't need to set your feet inside a holy place, you just stop your busyness, you Sabbath. Worship with God in space that is not burdened by work. And practically, here's what that means for us today. It's a time set apart to just rest and be in unity with God, not a time set apart to get a bunch of errands done, or to catch up on email, or to binge play Legend of Zelda, whatever it is. Legend of Zelda is okay. That's not, yeah, that might have been a poison dart a little bit. <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom is okay. It's fine. None of those things are inherently bad things. But the Sabbath day, it's not just a day off for you to do otherworldly, finite things. It's a day for you to actually enter into the presence of God and invite the presence of God into all that you do. It's to spend time in wonder and gratitude at the beauty of the life that God has given you. Deeply enjoy God's presence. It's, as Eugene Peterson put it, to pray and to play. And to be really clear, that doesn't mean, again, you just sit on your hands or you just sing worship songs all day long. That would get exhausting. Worship is expansive. Worship can actually include a lot of your gifts and passions. So Sabbath sometimes includes a good meal and a good drink. It sometimes includes fun with your family and close friends. It sometimes includes leisurely bike rides or a good nap. It sometimes includes pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> God said it. Pickleball. It's anything that can be restful for you and that you can enter into God's presence in and invite God's presence into what you're doing. To experience unity with God. Worship God through the goodness of his creation. So that's what the Sabbath is. It's delighting and settling in. It's not just sitting on our hands. It's the completion of creation. Not just a way to get us back into work. And it's worship, not just a day off. And when we build those things in, when we really understand that practice and build it into our lives, it starts to do things in us. First thing the Sabbath does in us, it resists the tyranny of busyness. And that's what busyness is. It is tyrannical. It is a constantly demanding dictator in our lives. As the story of the Bible continues for, we learn about a group of people that God has called to help be the vehicle of redemption and restoration for the whole world. This group of people comes to be known as the nation of Israel. And that nation, it's overtaken by another larger, stronger nation and put into slavery. That nation's called Egypt. And so the nation of Israel, these people were supposed to be vehicles of life to the world. They're burdened by the dehumanization of slavery, but also unfair working loads. The Bible goes out of its way to talk about that. Unfair working loads and conditions in Egypt. Quite literally, people are burdened by busyness, and so they cry out to God, and God liberates them. He frees them from slavery. And when he does that, he says, this new community, you guys are still a vehicle of redemption and restoration, so now you build rhythms of rest that fight against the tyranny of the empire that you were just freed from. Fight against the tyranny by building rest in. So he says, practice it once, weekly Sabbath. But then the rest keeps going. God really loves rest. And so the rest goes beyond the weekly Sabbath. They're also to celebrate seven festivals that are all about worshiping God throughout the year. And then those seven festivals, those every year happen, and then once every seven years, they're to liberate slaves and let the land rest from being farmed so you don't burn out the land. And then every seventh, seventh year, every 49th year, we call it the year of Jubilee. Now, if any 
when I lost the land or gone into debt, everything was forgiven. Rest is part of their rhythm, weekly, yearly, and then every 49 years. And the reason for this is that God's grace has brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of busyness and overwork and burdensomeness. Their rest is supposed to be a sign of resistance against the tyranny of the power-hungry and slave-driving Egyptian culture. So it's not just about feeling better about ourselves. When we rest, we are fighting against tyrannical forces in our world. Which means, in our own time, when many people in our culture, including many of us, have become slaves to busyness, Sabbath is a resistance to all of the unhealthy assumptions that inform that business. So in a culture that says you are defined by your work and your career, Sabbath proclaims you are a beloved child, rest in the love of God. In a culture that says you need to constantly consume and produce in order to be satisfied, Sabbath proclaims God has given me more than enough. And I rest in his overwhelming generosity. In a culture that says the world is dependent upon your work, Sabbath proclaims, I trust that actually God has made creation, and that God isn't anxious about it, and that the well-being of creation is not dependent on my constant work. You guys, our world is constantly and dramatically pressing in on us to do more, and to be more, and to hoard more, and Sabbath is the way we resist that tyranny in the middle of the empire of business that we live in. God's goodness will never be made known well to the world by stress and over-anxious and over-eager people who are constantly dissatisfied. God's love and grace will never be made known to the world if that's the sort of people we are, and that's the point. In order for uh, us to be vehicles of redemption and restoration, we have to have unity with God and bring that unity into the world, and that starts with rest. Abraham Joshua Heschel, in that same book I mentioned earlier, in this way, he says, he who wants to enter into the holiness of the day must first lay down the profanity of flattering commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquiring. He must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, we bring profit from the earth, and on his Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity plan. The world has our hands, our soul wants to spend Ready to fight some tyranny now? Huh? Sabbath is how we do it. Second thing Sabbath does, it cultivates a heart of gratitude to God. When we inhabit a culture that's constantly built on attaining more, we start to become people who increase in discontent. We actually start to adopt those assumptions and say, actually, I do need a little bit more in order to be at peace or secure or whatever else. And that means we often become fearful of losing what we have. We become anxious about getting more. We become stingy and not really generous people or other people. And Sabbath is the cure to that discontent because it teaches us to cease our restlessness of chasing after more and just being satisfied with what God has given us. Being grateful for what God has given us. Sabbath is always a reminder that we are not the ones who brought about our own existence. None of us did anything to bring about our own existence. That's a gift of God. Sabbath reminds us that all of the things that we actually prioritize and value most in the world are gifts. They're not things that we anxiously possess. They're things that have been given to us in amazing, beautiful ways. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, Sabbath is not simply the pause that refreshes, it is the pause that transforms. Whereas Israelites are always tempted to acquire Sabbath is an invitation to reset to an acknowledgement that what is needed is given and not to be seen. 
It's intimacy with God. So often our busy world, friends, it prevents us from really experiencing the presence of God. And it's not because we don't want to, it's not because we don't want God, it's just because the hurried pace actually prevents us from open-handedly receiving His presence, His love, His grace. I mean, imagine if for an entire week, every time my wife would want to spend time, every time my wife would want to share how she's feeling, every time my wife would just want to be with me, imagine if every time that happened, I had my phone out. I was wrong. Imagine if every time that happened, I was rushing around doing other things. Imagine if every time that happened, I was just thinking about my work. And then imagine if I said to her that she wasn't present enough to me. I would want every single one of you in the room to say, hey, Clint, stop it. Cease Sabbath. And yet we do that all the time with God. We do that all the time in our business. We treat our relationship with God and we hurry and hurry and hurry and then we wonder why after a week or a month or a year we don't feel connected to God. We talk about the absence of God and it's a worthwhile thing to explore, friends, but we need to also explore whether we've been absent to God. <coughs> so Sabbath teaches us the rhythm, rhythm of being present with God. Teach us to stop our over busy lives, to sit and listen, to be with God, to experience His love, to enjoy and delight in Him. Empties our hands of the tight grips of business. Now, these are all great things, but I also know all of your busy hearts and minds because I know my busy heart and mind. And you're like, well, okay, we talked about solitude and silence last week, and I can do 15 minutes, I'm recommending that, but a whole day, not a chance. How could I actually do this? My life is so packed. How can you do this? Well, again, we've created a resource for you. So if you didn't grab one on the way in, you can grab one on the way out. It just says Sabbath at the top. These resources actually give specific instructions for each of us and in each of our different life scenarios. Because Sabbath is actually something you can do independent of the life scenario that you're in. It's going to look different for each of us. But it's important to build this in. So take one of those out. We encourage you to start to think about this. And then I've got a few tips that I want to give you. As you enter into the Sabbath practice, take that resource with you. Uh, the first tip when it comes to implementing Sabbath is to pick a time. Establish a time. You've got to define it ahead of time because Sabbath will not just accidentally fall into your schedule. I know that from experience. In a culture of busyness, you've got to build it in. And if it feels like too much to do a whole day, work your way up. Start with four hours. Start with six hours. But make sure you pick that time and build it into your calendar like it's a doctor's appointment because it kind of is. It is for your health. Build it in like it's an appointment that you can't check. It's first thing, big time. Second thing, plan ahead. Because of how packed our lives already are, if you don't plan ahead, you're going to end up getting the Sabbath, and you're going to have a bunch of things that you want to get done that you didn't get done earlier. So get those things done earlier in the week. Plan ahead. Think about groceries. Think about whatever activity you need to do. Think about your plan ahead of time. There's a scholar I really like named Tim Mackey. He lived in Jerusalem when he was working on his PhD. And he describes uh, how Sabbath worked when he was there. He lived in this apartment that overlooked the market in the middle of Jerusalem. And on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem, celebrated the Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So as the sun is setting on Friday, there's a rabbi that goes around the market with a bell proclaiming that Sabbath is coming. Sabbath is coming. He does it at eight hours, he does it at four hours, he does it at one hour, he does it at 30 minutes, he does it at 10 minutes. And what Mackey noticed is that the market was always busier that Friday as people were trying to get everything done for the Sabbath. They got into the market and got everything done so that they could rest. So they didn't have to worry about all those things that count as work on the Sabbath. So they could really enjoy rest. So think about that. Have an internal bell. Sabbath is coming. Sabbath is coming. What do I need to get done so that I can deeply rest in the love of God? 
even some religious thing, you guys, it's part of our nature. It's part of the nature of creation. We want to enter into it well. Think about how you might want to spend time in delight with God, in prayer with God. A great question to ask if you're trying to think, what would I do on my Sabbath? This is a great question. What in the next 24 hours would bring me deep and profound joy with God? What in the next 24 hours would bring me deep and profound joy with God? Maybe it's time with your family. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's some sort of physically active thing. Pickleballers, you know. Whatever it is for you, ask yourself that question. What in the next 24 hours would bring me deep and profound rest? Let that question guide your head. Let's close with a great quote from Corey Tendon. She said it quite profoundly and simply, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. If the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. One of the primary ways that our enemy works in our lives isn't to create explicit, outright moral evil. It's actually just to keep us so busy that we don't think about God. To keep us so busy that we don't enter into God's presence. It keeps us hurried, and that's often born of our, out of our insecurity, out of our attempts to keep up with the Joneses, whatever else. And when we do that, we don't just go the way of our culture. We are fighting, doing violence against God and ourselves and the world. And Sabbath is where we resist that violence. So starting this week, friends, let's become a community that resists the tyranny of business in our culture. Let's become people who are unified deeply with the love and grace of God. Let's become people who practice gratitude instead of discontent. Because when we do those things, they transform us. When we sat this way, it transforms us, and it sends us back into the world as non-anxious, loving, gracious people. This week, let's do the most radical thing we can do, and stop doing it. Let's pray.